Hi, I'm Dominic Patton. And I'm Anthony D'Alessandro. And this is the Deadline Podcast, Hero Nation. Today we'll be talking about the Toronto International Film Festival, the resonance of Dune, and genre breaking through at the Emmys. We also have our guest, Why the Last Man showrunner, Eliza Clark. But before we go there to talk to Eliza, and if you haven't, go watch the first three episodes of Why the Last Man on FX on Hulu, debuted on September 13th. Anthony is just freshly back, as they say, from the Toronto International Film Festival, where we saw Dune blow people's minds. Yes. Oh, well, Dominic. The Spice. Is he the, is Timothy the one? Is Timothy the one? I think Zendaya is the one. Dominic. I'll go with that. She's awesome. Dominic, I know you don't go out to the, to the theater right now during the pandemic, but if you could try, I would say go to this one. It really is amazing. It is so not the 1984 David Lynch Byzantine film. It, I love it, that movie. It's crack-a-lacking. Yeah, I love that movie. I mean, this is like this is like Speed meets Dune. It's it's just fierce and fast, easy to understand. My only thing is, I'm really, I just hope you know, with the whole, you know, a lot of these HBO HBO Max theatrical day and date movies just haven't performed well. Um, even if they open well with a solid number, they plummet. Uh, and it took weeks for like Godzilla versus Kong to cross a hundred million. They really have, I believe, an Oscar best picture contender on their hand here. Wow. I just really hope, I really, you know, very much, I, I, I might even argue it's better than Mad Max Fury Road, but- that's um, a very high bar to reach, my friend. A very high bar to reach. And not just because it's competing sand dunes. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, um, man, I, I mean, he's got big plans for this, you know, for sequels. And I just hope financially somehow it all makes sense. All sorts of things. Now, yeah. th- like, you know, the HBO Max thing, obviously, that's, that's just a, a pandemic reality that for better or for worse, people have to accept now. But I understand from what you told me at, at TIFF, it, it actually, it, it fell into a weird category because they screened it at IMAX, which kind of put it in a... Well, what happened, what was interesting was, you know, usually after every screening, they're like, oh, vote for the People's Choice Award, which is a top prize at that festival. Despite the fact that it's an audience award, it is a big bellwether uh, for, for Oscar season. Um, I want to say about five times since since um, the beginning of the millennium, uh, this award has gone on to uh, be a bellwether for Oscars Best Picture. But even if it's not, it's usually something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or La La Land, something that really, or Jojo Jojo Rabbit, something that plays strong into the season. And so, this year you vote online, and when you go online to vote, there's like three major buzz titles you can't vote for. Dune, um, Last Night in Soho, and Spencer. And it turns out on the filmmakers, there's two things. One, the film had to be an official selection, but even more so, the festival was insisting that any film competing for the People's Choice Award needs to screen digitally and theatrically. And in the cases of those three films, they just wanted to screen theatrically. So that's what was interesting, what was going on. But uh, Got to see it in IMAX, Dom. Got to see it in the best type of theater you can find. I don't know where that is in LA with the Hollywood Arclight closed, but um, just 
just really a sublime film. The other thing is that, you know, it's like, well, why didn't they hold out for theatrical? Apparently, Legendary and Denis Villeneuve had the choice to do that, had the choice to move it to 2022. But from what I understand, for financial reasons, they kept it in the current year so that they could get paid out with back ends and whatnot uh, versus moving Makes it. Makes sense. Makes sense. I just, now. I just hope for sequels. It, it really is. I, I, it, uh, it is just so, it's is just it epic. Oh, it's very epic. It, but the thing is, it's you can understand it. Well, you know, there, it, it's not like you you go down a rabbit don't hole. Like the book. No. Yeah. No. Now, no, now to talk about let's talk let's talk about this quickly because go off book. We're coming up to this weekend the seventy third primetime Emmys. Lots of contenders within the genre categories, of course. But we came out of the creative Emmys with a little bit of history which is Marvel Studios have now, now can call themselves an Emmy winner. One division, one narrative half-hour production design, and for fantasy sci-fi costumes. Now, that, that half-hour production design is, you know, usually pretty much the realm of, of high-end sitcoms, like Grace and Frankie and what have you, um, Glow. This was a big deal. They are nominated, One Division is nominated for uh, 23 Emmys this year, the most of any limited series. But this is a big deal because this is a breakthrough. And do you think, I mean, you know what predictions are, what predictions are, but what do you think? Do you think one division is going to have a chance at the primetime Emmys this weekend? I I think the one chance one division has actually um, is Paul Bettany for best supporting actor. That's a good an, chance, my friend. An anthology series. I unfortunately don't think it's going to take the top prize in that miniseries anthology category because it is just, you want to talk about you know, a, a, just a bloodthirsty, fierce battle. Yeah. It's up against Mayor of Easttown and Queen's Gambit, which, as you yeah. know, came out of the creatives with nine, nine Emmy wins. Um, I think odds are on Queen's Gambit. And in that instance where it doesn't win, then it's Mayor. Um, but WandaVision, I think, Paul Bettany, best chance. I'm still for the Don Cheeto, my man. Don Cheeto. All right. That, with having said all that, we announced earlier that she's going to be joining us. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the showrunner of Why the Last Man, which is on FX on Hulu, Eliza Clark. Thanks for having me. So, let's just talk a little bit about the show, which debuted on September 13th on FX on Hulu. Um, it's based on a very, very well-known graphic novel. And I'm just going to summarize, and please don't uh, hate me if it's the crass summarization Basically, anyone with a Y chromosome in the world is gone. It is wipeout time. Um, now, for most people, and in the graphic novel, that essentially means all the men are gone. But why The Last Man, the TV series, takes a slightly different approach. In fact, I wouldn't say slightly at all. It takes a profoundly different approach and looks at what exactly the breakdown of Y and X chromosomes can mean in a world where, let's be honest, we have many, many gender decisions and many, many gender choices. Eliza, give us a little bit of a sense of why you decided that that is the way you wanted to approach this for this television series. Oh, I thought that was a great description. Um, oh, I, <laughs> I, um, I was really excited to make a show that was about identity in a, you know, in a broad way, like, uh, we meet these characters before the event and by the end of the season, they will have changed dramatically. Um, and 
you know, part of what I love about the book is that it examines how systems of oppression uh, kind of conspire to inform our identities. And I just, you know, I think it was a important to just show the world as it is, which is that, you know, what chromosomes are not equal to gender. Um, but also I think it was important to show the ways that human beings like to create binaries, like to create sort of boxes to put people in and the possibility of a world that uh, has been so decimated that it has an opportunity to start over uh, can give us a chance to explore the ways that binaries are not actually um, that useful. Now to that, let's be, let's be clear. Um, this is not a theoretical notion within, within the show. And if you haven't seen the first three episodes are available uh, up on Hulu, on FX on Hulu, which I always think is, like, I don't know why we just don't say Hulu. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and things have gotten pretty, pretty effing bleak already. Um, but one of the elements that, you, you, that is part of the show is actually there is a, a, a trans, a, there are several trans characters and their, and their, their existence let alone uh, participation in the series is is jarring to many people who just simply like, I thought all the men were dead. And then there's like, well, it's a little more compl complex than that. So I wanted to get an, a notion from you about that that transmission or adaption from theoretical notions of talking about, about gender um, to actually implementing it with act actually as a part of the narrative with real characters like Sam. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's really important to, uh, to not just include theoretical ideas of inclusion, but actually, um, you know, see a perspective. Uh, there are plenty of men in Why the Last Man. We make clear that Yorick is not uh, special because of his maleness, but because of his Y chromosome. And I think it actually is just, I think it's really interesting the way that um, Sam and Yorick's journeys mirror each other in certain ways you know I think um at the very beginning anyone who has anyone who's a visible man in this world is seen as you know potentially a survivor maybe they're a ghost maybe they're a or you know like I think there's there's um people are trying to kind of figure it out and depending on where you are in the world and your um understanding of gender diversity people are either, you know, totally, uh, totally understand what's going on or are shocked or think they can sell somebody or whatever, you know. Um, and, uh, and then as time goes on, Yorick is presumed to be trans, I think in a way that's exciting and interesting. Um, and we have, you know, kind of an, an interesting reversal of the narratives that you've seen before about trans identity, but now it's with Yorick where he is the one being questioned about who he is and he's having to kind of answer for himself in ways that he never has before. Now, um, we should just be clear for people who haven't seen it. Yorick, who is the star, who is who's played by, and please correct me because I know, Eliza, can you say Ben's last name? Because I'm yes, terrible. Ben Schnetzer. So Ben Schnetzer, who, who plays Yorick, who we might add is the son of the, the now president of the United States, played by Diane Lane, who is a senior co member of Congress, who when um, literally, and I don't want to say in the situation room, and I'm not giving away a spoiler, but in a major meeting with the president and a lot of dudes, mm -hmm. suddenly blood comes out of people's noses. Yeah. And <laughs> she becomes Speaker of the House, and then very quickly afterwards, the president of the United States. 
um, a United States that seems to be mainly, a world that seems to be mainly run by women, and there are a number of issues, practical ones, which mm -hmm. often you don't see in these kind of apocalyptic shows. And in fact, I, that was a very, I thought a particular approach you took is the first several episodes, we don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen new episodes, which will debut every week on FX on Hulu, um, is that the, the, the first several episodes deal with some very practical questions of, of how does the world move on? And literally what happens to people who were one day advising the president of the United States and now one day can't even get electricity and food in their house and how do people survive? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because I think, you know, the knee-jerk reaction to a world, at least for me, the knee-jerk reaction to a world without cisgender men is like, oh, a world dominated by a majority of women, like, we'll figure it out, we'll be great. Um, but I think that the truth is that uh, there are, you know, because of the ways that women and people who aren't cis men have been kept out, you know, there's so much gatekeeping that happens in all of these industries. Um, and, you know, the ways that as particularly in the United States, we don't, um, we don't give good parental leave. We don't, you know, there's like plenty of reasons why there are more cis men in the workforce, uh, than other people. And, uh, we end up in a situation where, yes, of course there are women who are engineers and yes, there are women who know how to farm and all these things, but a, they've lost you know, 50% of the people in their lives. And that can include husbands and sons and fathers and, you know, and, but also um, the world has come to a grinding halt because of the way that our, the economy works and because of the way the event happened. So, you know, it's, it happens all of a sudden, um, cars crash, planes fall out of the sky. And, um, you know, I did a, a ton of research about how the economy and how infrastructure and the power grid and all these things work. And essentially, um, we would be in big trouble for at least a little while. And it was important to me to show the people who are actually trying to figure it out um, and seeing that there are all these capable people, you know, a majority of them women who are in the Pentagon who are, you know, determined to figure out how to kind of put the world back together but there are so many holes in the dam 24 hours a day you know there's nuclear weapons that have to be dealt with there's infrastructure that even before the event is crumbling you know our power grid is a hastily constructed and like you know patchwork system that makes absolutely no sense so if the power grid goes down then you have you know you can't and there's and the you know highways are choked with cars and our entire economy runs on trucks and five percent of truck drivers are women and at the same time even if you have those five percent of women uh you can't drive on the roads at all like then you can't get you know the chemicals you need to get to water treatment plants to have clean water and you can't get uh food to grocery stores. I mean, it's not just about like the immediate, you know, hoarding or whatever that happens in a crisis. It's also about the way that our economy is interconnected and doesn't have a really um, great sense of uh, anything other than the present moment. There's no plan B in America. <laughs> oh, no, there's no plan B. Yeah. So tell me about the timeline with this. Had you hammered out all of your scripts before the pandemic? Were you writing into the pandemic? Because well, it's very- there, there, is, there is, Anthony, remember, there is a reference at one point, I think in episode two or three, when it looks like there's a surviving member of the Republican president's cabinet, a female surviving member, 
And she's referred to, I believe, as an anti-vaxxer, isn't she? She is, in, but but remember, there used to be anti-vaxxers who like didn't want to give their kids MMR vaccines. Oh, hello, <laughs> welcome to Santa Monica. Yes, <laughs> well, those quaint yeah. times we used to live in. Um, I uh, we the writers and I wrote, you know, a majority of the season. We were about to start shooting, and then COVID hit. We were two weeks away from shooting when COVID hit. Um, you know, and it was two weeks to stop the spread and we were all going to just like, I, where, yeah. where, where did you guys shoot the series? We shot in Toronto. Ah, Toronto, <laughs> the dystopian capital of America. <laughs> Toronto, Toronto is, a good, is a good city for, for this kind of thing. Like it's, I mean, they have a lot of different, uh, I used to live in Toronto and oh, I, yeah. when I moved to Toronto from Montreal and, and when I moved there, um, I was immediately struck by, they used to call Toronto, Toronto, the good. Uh -huh. the orange order and what have you but it's toronto the ugly like i mean yes there's a lot to love about toronto but man do they love pouring concrete in toronto i mean it's brutal like they do they're still under construction there i know and like literally their city hall is like the city hall that got rejected by everywhere else in the world and so they built this thing that's like a space station that doesn't quite take off Listen, exactly. I can't, you know, I'm not going to insult the, the city that took us <laughs> in. I also lived, I lived, you know, right on the lake. It was really, it's, it was kind oh, of- you mean, Oh, Elijah, you mean the lake that they built a freeway in front of to cut you off from actually <laughs> seeing the lake? Yes, but because I lived, you know, five blocks from it, I could walk to it. Yeah. So it was fine. Was I, listen, I, I got no hate for Toronto, but I will say it was completely shut down the entire time I was there. So I have no experience of it. I am looking forward to going back and, you know, like going to a restaurant. And, and you I were saying say, Toronto is very good to me. I love Toronto, but let's be honest. It is Toronto the brutal. It is. Well, it for, certainly in uh, January, it is. Yeah. Well, but you were saying you hammered out all your scripts before oh, yeah. the pandemic happened. We, yeah, I mean, we had most of our scripts before the pandemic happened. We were about to start shooting, COVID hit. We were like, I, you know, I, uh, at, fir I, at first I stayed in Toronto, hoping that it would just be two weeks and then we'd start again. Uh, obviously that beca it became clear that that was not going to happen. I finally came home and then we had about four months before we started again. And in that four months, you know, the world changed dramatically in lots of different ways. Um, and we spent some time thinking about how to deal with it in, in the show. Um, ultimately, I don't want to watch a show about COVID. Like I'm, you know, and, and as you said, the, the beginning of why is um, pretty brutal because this horrible thing happens. And I didn't want to shy away from that. And I think, you know, in a live action adaptation of a comic book, like it's, it's easier in a comic book to kind of gloss over the event itself. But, you know, the truth is people lost children, people lost, you know, loved ones. It's a, I mean, it's, it's horrific what happens. The show, I'll just say, gets much funnier and more fun. It is. Okay. And it, because it, it, it couldn't get less, let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, hey, hey, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that around episode five, things start to get, you know, you, you it, it's an adventure story. It's a Western. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a road trip and, um, uh, you know, stay tuned. It will have that sort of madcap humor that the um, comic book has. But because yeah, please go ahead. Since I mean, since March of 2020, it's felt like the power grid has just shut down here. 
So none of that, none of that impacted or changed any of your storylines, what we were going through. It, I mean, it did, it, I, you know, we talked about like, did COVID happen in the world of why the last man? And I was like, you know, listen, we can't have two. It's like too many apocalypses. Well, actually, let me and, ask you, let me ask you that though, Eliza, just because I always find this interesting about dystopian um, series. Um, in your mind, what year does the series take place in? I think it is an alternate 2021. Ah. No, I think I'm, I'm very, I'm super interested in the ways that speculative fiction can speak to our world. And, you know, Why the Last Man, the comic book and the series has a sort of understanding of genre and pop culture that I think is really fun to play with. At the same time, like, you know, any kind of um, parallels that you see with real people that exist, you know, in our characters you know, sure, there are parallels. We obviously talked about people who are real politicians. At the same time, we really didn't want to make it feel like, oh, this is that person, you know, because- I have to admit, your president did feel a lot to me like he was Mike Pence. He kind of looks like him a little bit. I mean- well, And also because, yeah. he, because unlike, even though he's a hardcore Republican, he's kind of hardcore reasonable, but there's also this notion that he's a career politician, that he's been around for a while. His kids played with the Democratic leadership, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, Dominic, I will, I don't want to like reveal too much here, but I don't find Mike Pence to be reasonable in any way. So I, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I misspoke there. I, I misspoke, but does, I, does he, certainly any man who won't have, won't eat food in a room with a woman, if his wife isn't there, there, there are issues. Slightly unreasonable. I, I, what I meant, what I meant by reasonable is um, he didn't, uh, He's he not didn't ask the speaker of the house to get in the tanning booth with him. He didn't. Yes. Uh, yes. I would say that, you know, I, I, you know, for me, the series is about all of the way, you know, all of the intersections of our identities and, you know, how we, uh, how we all uphold systems that don't serve us. So it was more, rather than making somebody, you know, um, who, even if you take like Amber Tamlin's character, Kimberly, you know, that's a character who, I don't agree with politically, but who has- Eliza, I should just stop you for a second. Yes. Even up. Uh, Amber's character is the daughter of the president. Uh, she is, for lack of a, uh, very quickly, a, a very pro-male right-wing pundit. Yes, when you meet her, I think it's, I don't think it's a um, spoiler to say that when you meet her, she's like, she's on a book tour talking about her book that's called Boy Mom. She has like a very gendered, uh, motherhood brand uh she's got three little boys um a husband she's the daughter of the president her entire kind of identity is wrapped up in her proximity to men and she is a person like who like many people upholds patriarchy in spite of the fact that it doesn't necessarily serve them so you know that's a character who i think could be could be treated with a broad brush especially from somebody who personally has, you know, like, I don't, I don't, that's not a, a woman I necessarily identify with, but it was important to me and to Amber and to the writers to make this a person who you understand and who you, you know, feel for. She's lost everything. Um, I don't remember what the question was, but anyway, I, yes, COVID had, you know, it was interesting. Like there's things that happen in the show that you're like, oh, they must have known, you know, 
there's a sort of January 6th type of thing that happens. That was written way before January 6th. There's a scene in a subway that looks very similar to some of the images we've seen out of New York. At the same time, that was something we wrote long before. Um, because the truth is, uh, you know, we're living in an ongoing apocalypse right now. And um, that was sort of happening before COVID too. So, yeah. So having the show on streaming on Hulu, was that was it always intended to be that way? And given that it is, does it give you more freedom to do, to be edgier? Um, you know, when I came on board, it hadn't been decided whether it would be on FX or FX on Hulu. Um, it was decided, you know, a, I forget exactly when. It was before we started shooting. Um, and yes, it totally gave us the freedom to do, you know, basically anything we wanted, <laughs> which is great. Now, now part of that is, is also, um, you know, the process of adaptation is always tricky because you're trying to make, you're trying to make something anew where, you know, you, you have a market, a lot of people who immediately jump up. You know, I've talked to them, many people on The Walking Dead who say, you don't even know how many emails we get that people still say that Norman Reedus shouldn't be on the show. And I'm like, he's the star of the show now. Like, what the hell? Um, how was that for you? Because why the, the comic takes place essentially in the early years of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Not exactly, you know, Paradise City by any stretch of the imagination, but very different than 2021 in, in, in many ways, and certainly in the way that the, how can I put this? the root to the fruit, for lack of a better expression. How was that process of adaptation for you? And what was the biggest challenge? I've never heard of the root to the fruit before. So I don't know what you mean by that, but I'm like, now I'm like obsessed with oh, that. Well, what it means is <laughs> like you take something like it's the planting of a seed, sure. say for instance, and then, and then how that seed grows into something. Okay, so, great. You know. That makes perfect yeah. sense. That was what I thought that you meant via context clues, but I had never heard that expression before. Oh. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, the book was written basically in the wake of 9-11. And I think that um, even though I think they had, they had started, um, Pia and Brian had started working on it before 9-11 and then 9-11 happened very early. I think it was like after the first issue, they were, um, and they had this moment where they were like, oh my God, you know, nobody's gonna wanna read this right now. Uh, and they were wrong about that because everybody wanted to read it. It's a very, you know, it's one of the most successful comic books of all time. Um, I read it in 2009 when I was working on a television show called Rubicon um, that my then coworker, now husband gave to me. <laughs> um, and he, you know, he was like, I've read your plays and this feels like, you know, this feels like something that you would really like. So I've been a huge fan of this book for, you know, my, basically my entire adult life. And, um, you know, that's daunting because I don't, I'm as a fan, I also want to do right by the book at the same time, you know, I think that comic books are a medium unto themselves. I don't think that they're, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the kind of Hollywood thing of like, everything has to be IP and you have, you know, basically it's like get a comic book so that then you can make it a television show, like that the, that a television show is the ultimate thing that a comic book could be. You know, I think a comic book is a comic book and it's a beautiful medium unto itself. I think the process of adapting it is 
you know, how do I make something that is exciting for people who have never read the comic book and who have no interest in reading a comic book and then also honor the people who love it, love the characters, love the story, uh, but who, you know, I've never understood why people who love something want to see exactly the thing they love. Um, because you can just read the thing you love that exists. Uh, so to me, I liken it to like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a cover of a song. Like you don't want it to be exactly the same as the original. Um, because otherwise you could just listen to the original. So that was the sort of process that I took. Um, I think that the, the series is, uh, is very faithful to the comic book spirit and the worlds of the comic book and the ideas that it's trying to explore. And as I said, the show is going to get funnier in the way that the book is. You just have to sort of get through some of the, the realities of the thing that happens. Well, Eliza, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as we said earlier, Why the Last Man is on uh, FX on Hulu. Um, I didn't get a chance to review it last week, which is uh, bad on me, but I will tell you right now, it's pretty great. So, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> not very funny from what I've seen so far, but you know, end of the world, the jokes have to come later, clearly. Um, I, plus anyways, you guys are on the road now, so it'll be fun. You know, yeah. you'll, go, you'll go here, you'll go there. Yeah, yes. Thank you. I promise you, you there will be laughs, they're coming. Like, like laughs or jokes? Well, I mean, jokes, like it's all born from character. So I don't know if there's anything like, but I'm, but it's- like two, uh, two it's, survivors walk into a bar. Yeah, no, it's not that, but it, 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 there is a dark humor to it that um, I love, so. Lots of bleeding noses. No, <laughs> listen, listen, you know, we can talk again. You can, you can decide whether I was right about this, but I think around episode five, there's some, some funny stuff that starts to happen. All right, we'll keep you to that. Thank you so much, Eliza, for joining Great. us. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye. Bye. So that was, I mean, Eliza's amazing. I hope we will. Let's have her back. Let's have her back after this episode or so. We'll, 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 we'll see if there's actually jokes. Uh, but thank you for all of you for joining us for this episode of the Deadline Podcast Hero Nation. We really appreciate it. And as well as listening to us, make sure you always subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss a single episode of us yakking. And of course, you can find all of our breaking news coverage of TV, film, business, and everything affecting our industry at Deadline.com. And this weekend, especially on Sunday, Anthony and I and the rest of the Deadline team will be hot on the Emmys. Maybe Paul Bettany will win it for WandaVision. Maybe not. But we're going to be there with all the winners, all the surprises. So join us for that. And otherwise, we will see you or talk to you next week.